Chapter Five of Prejudice's First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudice's First Series by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Five. Professor Veblen. Ten or twelve years ago, being engaged in a bombastic discussion with what was then known as an intellectual socialist, like the rest of the intelligentsia, he succumbed to the first Fife Corps of the war, pulled down the red flag, damned Marx as a German spy, and began whooping for Elihu Root, Otto Kahn, and Abraham Lincoln. I was greatly belabored and incommoded by his long quotations from a certain professor, Dr. Thorstein Veblen, then quite unknown to me. My antagonist manifestly attached a great deal of importance to these borrowed sagacities, for he often heaved them at me in lengths of a column or two and urged me to read every word of them. I tried hard enough, but found it impossible going. The more I read them, in fact, the less I could make of them, and so in the end, growing impatient and impolite, I denounced this Professor Veblen as a geyser of pishposh, refused to waste any more time upon his incomprehensible syllogisms, and applied myself to the other socialist witnesses in the case, seeking to set fire to their shirts. That old debate, which took place by mail, for the socialist lived like a munitions patriot on his country estate, and I was a wage-slave attached to a city newspaper, was afterwards embalmed in a dull book, and made the mild pother of a day. The book by name, Men Versus the Man, is now as completely forgotten as Baxter's Saint's Rest, or the Constitution of the United States. I myself, perhaps the only man who remembers it at all, have not looked into it for six or eight years, and all I can recall of my opponent's argument beyond the fact that it not only failed to convert me to the nascent Bolshevism of the time, but left me a bitter and incurable scoffer at democracy in all its forms, is his curious respect for the aforesaid Professor Dr. Thorstein Veblen, and his delight in the learned gentleman's long, tortuous, and, to me at least, intolerably flapdoodleish phrases. There was indeed a time when I forgot even this, when my mind was empty of the professor's very name. That was, say, from 1909 or thereabout to the middle of 1917. During those years, having lost all my old superior interest in socialism, even as an amateur psychiatrist, I ceased to read its literature and thus lost track of its great thinkers. The periodicals that I then gave an eye to, setting aside newspapers, were chiefly the familiar American imitations of the English weeklies of opinion, and in these the dominant great thinker was, first, the late Professor Dr. William James, and after his decease, Professor Dr. John Dewey. The reign of James, as the illuminated will recall, was long and glorious. For three or four years running he was mentioned in every one of those American spectators and Saturday reviews at least once a week and often a dozen times. Among the less somber gazettes of the Republic, to be sure, there were other heroes. Matterlink, Rebindranath Tagore, Judge Ben B. Lindsay, and the late Major General Roosevelt, Tom Larson, and so on. Still further down the literary and intellectual scale there were yet others, Hall Caine, Brough, and Jack Johnson among them, with paper-bag cookery and the twilight sleep to dispute their popularity. But on the majestic level of the old nation, among the white and lavender peaks of professorial ratiocination, there was scarcely a serious rival to James. Now and then, perhaps, Jane Addams had a month of vogue, and during one winter there was a rage for Bergson, 
and for a short space the unspeakable Bernsdorf tried to set up Eucken, now damned with Wagner, Nietzsche, and Ludendorff, but taking one day with another, James held his own against the field. His ideas, immediately they were stated, became the ideas of every pedagogue from Harvard to Leland Stanford. And the pedagogues, laboring furiously at space rates, rammed them into the skulls of the lesser cerebelli. To have called James an ass during the year 1909 would have been as fatal as to have written a sentence like this one without having used so many halves. He died a bit later but his ghost went marching on. It took three or four years to interpret and pigeonhole his philosophical remains and to take down and redact his messages, via Sir Oliver Lodge, Little Bright Eyes, Wawa the Indian Chief, and other gifted psychics, from the spirit world. But then gradually he achieved the ultimate stupendous and irrevocable act of death, and there was a vacancy. To it, Professor Dr. Dewey was elected by the acclamation of all right-thinking and forward-looking men. He was an expert in pedagogics, metaphysics, psychology, ethics, logic, politics, pedagogical metaphysics, metaphysical psychology, psychological ethics, ethical logic, logical politics, and political pedagogics. He was Arsham Magister, Philosophi Doctor, and twice Legum Doctor. He had written a book called How to Think. He sat in a professor's chair and caned sophomores for blowing spitballs. Ergo, he was the ideal candidate, and so he was nominated, elected, and inaugurated, and for three years more or less he enjoyed a peaceful reign in the groves of sapience, and the inferior umbilicari venerated him as they had once venerated James. I myself greatly enjoyed and profited by the discourses of this Professor Dewey and was in hopes that he would last. Born so recently as 1859 and a man of that highest bearable sobriety, he seemed likely to peg along until 1935 or 40, a gentle and charming volcano of correct thought. But it was not a last to be. Under cover of pragmatism, that serpent's metaphysic, there was unrest beneath the surface. Young professors in remote and obscure universities, apparently as harmless as so many convicts in the death house, were secretly flirting with new and red-hot ideas. Whole regiments and brigades of them yielded in stealthy privacy to rebellious and often incomprehensible yearnings. Now and then, as if to reveal what was brewing, a hell-fire blazed and a Professor Dr. Scott Nearing went sky-hooting through its smoke. One heard whispers of strange heresies, economic, sociological, even political. Gossip had it that pedagogy was hatching vipers, nay, was already brought to bed. But not much of this got into the homemade Saturday reviews and Yankee Athenaeums. A hint or two, maybe, but no more. In the main they kept to their old resolute demands for a pure civil service, the budget system in Congress, the abolition of hazing at the Naval Academy, and honest primary and justice to the Filipinos, with extermination of the Prussian serpent added after August 1914. And Dr. Dewey, on his remote Socratic out, pursued the calm reinforcement of the philosophical principles underlying these and all other lofty and indignant causes. Then, of a sudden, sis! Boom! Ah! Then overnight the upspringing of the intellectual Soviets, the headlong assault upon all the old axioms of pedagogical speculation, the nihilistic dethronement of Professor Duty, and raw, raw, raw for Professor Dr. Thorstein Veblen. Veblen? Could it be? Aye, it was my old acquaintance. 
the doctor obscurus of my half-forgotten bout with the so-called intellectual socialist, the great thinker Redivivus. Here indeed he was again, and in a few months, almost it seemed a few days, he was all over the nation, the dial, the new republic, and the rest of them, and his books and pamphlets began to pour from the presses, and the newspapers reported his every wink and whisper, and everybody who was anybody began gabbling about him. The spectacle, I do not hesitate to say, somewhat disconcerted me and even distressed me. On the one hand, I was sorry to see so learned and interesting a man as Dr. Dewey sent back to the insufferable dungeons of Columbia, there to lecture in imperfect Yiddish to classes of Grand Street Plato's and on the other hand I shrunk supinely from the appalling job newly rearing itself before me of rereading the whole canon of the singularly laborious and muggy, the incomparably tangled and unintelligible works of Professor Dr. Thorstein Veblen. But if a sense of duty tortures a man, it also enables him to achieve prodigies, and so I managed to get through the whole infernal job. I read the theory of the leisure class, I read the theory of business enterprise, and then I read the instinct of workmanship. An hiatus followed. I was racked by a severe neuralgia with delusions of persecution. On recovering I tackled Imperial Germany and the Industrial Revolution. Malaria for a month, and then the nature of peace and the terms of its perpetuation. What ensued was never diagnosed. Probably it was some low infection of the mesentery or spleen. When it passed off, leaving only an asthmatic cough, I read The Higher Learning in America, and then went to Mount Clements to drink the Galber salts. Eureka! The business was done. It had strained me, but now it was over. Alas, a good part of the agony had been needless. What I found myself aware of coming to the end was that practically the whole system of Professor Dr. Beblin was in his first book, and his last, that is, in the theory of the leisure class and the higher learning in America. I pass on the good news. Read these two and you won't have to read the others. And if even two daunt you, then read the first. Once through it, though you will have missed many a pearl and many a pain, you will have a fairly good general acquaintance with the gifted metaphysician's ideas. For these ideas in the main are quite simple and often anything but revolutionary in essence. What is genuinely remarkable about them is not their novelty or their complexity, nor even the fact that a professor should harbor them. It is the astoundingly grandiose and rococo manner of their statement, the almost unbelievable tediousness and flatulence of the gifted headmaster's prose, his unprecedented talent for saying nothing in an august and heroic manner. There are tales of an actress of the last generation, probably Sarah Bernhardt, who could put pathos and even terror into a recitation of the multiplication table. The late Louis James did something of the sort. He introduced limericks into Pier Ghent, and still held the yokelry agape. The same talent raised to a high power is in this Professor Dr. Veblen. Tunnel under his great moraines and stalagmites of words, dig down into his vast kitchen midden of discordant and raucous polysyllables, blow up the hard, thick shell of his almost theological manner, and what you will find in his discourse is chiefly a mass of platitudes, the self-evident made horrifying, the obvious in terms of the staggering. Marx, I dare say, said a good deal of it, and what Marx overlooked has been said over and over again by his heirs and assigns. But Marx, at this business, labored under a technical handicap. He wrote in German, a language he actually understood. 
Professor Dr. Veblen submits himself to no such disadvantage. Though born, I believe, in these states, and resident here all his life, he achieves the effect, perhaps without employing the means of thinking in some unearthly foreign language, say, Swahili, Sumerian, or Old Bulgarian, and then painfully clawing his thoughts into a copious but uncertain and book-learned English. The result is a style that affects the higher cerebral centers like a constant roll of subway expresses. The second result is a sort of bewildered numbness of the senses, as before some fabulous and unearthly marvel. And the third result, if I make no mistake, is the celebrity of the professor as a great thinker. In brief, he states his hollow nothings in such high astounding terms that they must inevitably arrest and blister the right-thinking mind. He makes them mysterious. He makes them shocking. He makes them portentous. And so, flinging them at naive and believing minds, he makes them stick and burn. No doubt you think that I exaggerate, perhaps even that I lie. If so, then consider this specimen, the first paragraph of chapter 13 of the theory of the leisure class. In an increasing proportion as time goes on, the anthropomorphic cult, with its code of devout observances, suffers a progressive disintegration through the stress of economic exigencies and the decay of the system of status. As this disintegration proceeds, there comes to be associated and blended with the devout attitude certain other motives and impulses that are not always of an anthropomorphic origin, nor traceable to the habit of personal subservience. Not all of these subsidiary impulses that blend with the bait of devoutness in the latter devotional life are altogether congruous with the devout attitude or with the anthropomorphic apprehension of a sequence of phenomenon. Their origin being not the same, their action upon the scheme of devout life is also not in the same direction. In many ways they traverse the underlying norm of subservience or vicarious life to which the code of devout observances and the ecclesiastical and sacerdotal institutions are to be traced as their substantial basis. Through the presence of these alien motives, the social and industrial regime of status gradually disintegrates and the canon of personal subservience loses the support derived from an unbroken tradition. Extraneous habits and proclivities encroach upon the field of action occupied by this canon, and it presently comes about that the ecclesiastical and sacerdotal structures are partially converted to other uses, in some measure alien to the purposes of the scheme of devout life as it stood in the days of the most vigorous and characteristic development of the priesthood. Well, what have we here? What does this appalling salvo of rhetorical artillery signify? What is the sweating professor trying to say? What is his message now? Simply that in the course of time the worship of God is commonly corrupted by other enterprises, and that the church, ceasing to be a mere temple of adoration, becomes the headquarters of these other enterprises. More simply still, that men sometimes vary serving God by serving other men, which means, of course, serving themselves. This bald platitude, which must be obvious to any child who has ever been to a church bazaar or a parish house, is here tortured, worried, and run through rollers until it is spread out to 241 words, of which fully 200 are unnecessary. The next paragraph is even worse. In it, the master undertakes to explain in his peculiar dialect the meaning of that non-reverential sense of aesthetic congruity with the environment which is left as a residue of the latter-day act of worship after elimination 
of its anthropomorphic content. Just what does he mean by this non-reverent sense of aesthetic congruity? I have studied the whole paragraph for three days, halting only for prayer and sleep, and I have come to certain conclusions. I may be wrong, but nevertheless it is the best that I can do. What I conclude is this. He is trying to say that many people go to church not because they are afraid of the devil, but because they enjoy the music and like to look at the stained glass, the potted lilies, and the reverend pastor. To get this profound and highly original observation upon paper, he wastes not merely 241, but more than 300 words. To say what might be said on a postage stamp, he takes more than a page in his book. And so it goes, alas, alas, in all his other volumes, a sense worth of information wrapped in a bale of polysyllables. In the higher learning in America, the thing perhaps reaches its damnedest and worst. It is as if the practice of that incredibly obscure and malodorous style were a relentless disease, a sort of progressive intellectual diabetes, a leprosy of the horse sense. Words are flung upon words until all recollection that there must be a meaning in them, a ground and excuse for them, is lost. One wanders in a labyrinth of nouns, adjectives, verbs, pronouns, adverbs, prepositions, conjunctions, and participles, most of them swollen and nearly all of them unable to walk. It is difficult to imagine worse English within the limits of intelligible grammar. It is clumsy, affected, opaque, bombastic, windy, empty. It is without grace or distinction, and it is often without the most elementary order. The learned professor gets himself enmeshed in his gnarled sentences like a bull trapped by barbed wire, and his efforts to extricate himself are quite as furious and quite as spectacular. He heaves, he leaps, he writhes. At times he seems to be at the point of yelling for the police. It is a picture to bemuse the vulgar and to give the judicious grief. Worse, there is nothing at the bottom of all this strident wind music. The ideas it is designed to set forth are, in the overwhelming main, poor ideas, and often they are ideas that are almost idiotic. One never gets the thrill of sharp and original thinking dexterously put into phrases. The concepts underlying, say, the theory of the leisure class, are simply socialism and water. The concepts underlying the higher learning in America are so childishly obvious that even the poor drudges who write editorials for newspapers have often voiced them. When, now and then, the professor tires of this emission of stale bosh and attempts flights of a more original character, he straightway comes tumbling down into absurdity. What the reader then has to struggle with is not only intolerably bad writing, but also loose, flabby, cocksure, and preposterous thinking. Again I take refuge in an example. It is from Chapter 4 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. The problem before the author here has to do with the social convention which frowns upon the consumption of alcohol by women, at least to the extent to which men may consume it decorously. Well then, what is his explanation of this convention? Here in brief is his process of reasoning. 1. The leisure class, which is the predatory class of feudal times, reserves all luxuries for itself and disapproves their use by members of the lower classes, for this use takes away their charm by taking away their exclusive possession. 2. Women are chattels in the possession of the leisure class, and hence subject to the rules made for inferiors. The patriarchal tradition says that the woman, being a chattel, 
should consume only what is necessary to her sustenance, except so far as her further consumption contributes to the comfort or the good repute of her master. 3. The consumption of alcohol contributes nothing to the comfort or good repute of the woman's master, but detracts sensibly from the comfort or pleasure of her master. Ergo, she is forbidden to drink. This, I believe, is a fair specimen of the Veblenian ratiocination. Observe it well, for it is typical. That is to say, it starts off with a gratuitous and highly dubious assumption, proceeds to an equally dubious deduction, and then ends with a platitude which begs the whole question. What sound reason is there for believing that exclusive possession is the hallmark of luxury? There is none that I can see. It may be true of a few luxuries, but it is certainly not true of the most familiar ones. Do I enjoy a decent bath because I know that John Smith cannot afford one, or because I delight in being clean? Do I admire Beethoven's Fifth Symphony because it is incomprehensible to congressmen and Methodists, or because I genuinely love music? Do I prefer terrapin a la Maryland to fried liver because plowhands must put up with the liver? or because the terrapin is intrinsically a more charming dose? Do I prefer kissing a pretty girl to kissing a charwoman because even a janitor may kiss a charwoman, or because the pretty girl looks better, smells better, and kisses better? Now and then, to be sure, the idea of exclusive possession enters into the concept of luxury. I may, if I am a bibliophile, esteem a book because it is a unique first edition. I may, if I am fond, esteem a woman because she smiles on no one else. But even here, save in a very small minority of cases, other attractions plainly enter into the matter. It pleases me to have a unique first edition, but I wouldn't care anything for a unique first edition of Robert W. Chambers or Eleanor Glynn. The author must have my respect. The book must be intrinsically valuable. There must be much more to it than its mere uniqueness. And if being fond, I glory in the exclusive smiles of a certain miss, or misses, then surely my satisfaction depends chiefly upon the lady herself and not upon my mere monopoly. Would I delight in the fidelity of the charwoman? Would it give me any joy to learn that through a sense of duty to me she had ceased to kiss the janitor? Confronted by such considerations, it seems to me that there is little truth left in Professor Veblen's theory of conspicuous consumption and conspicuous waste. That what remains of it, after it is practically applied a few times, is no more than a wraith of balderdash. In so far as it is true, it is obvious. All the professor accomplishes with it is to take what everyone knows and pump it up to such proportions that everyone begins to doubt it. What could be plainer than his failure in the case just cited? He starts off with a platitude and ends in absurdity. No one denies, I take it, that in a clearly limited sense women occupy a place in the world, or, more accurately, aspire to a place in the world that is a good deal like that of a chattel. Marriage, the goal of their only honest and permanent hopes, invades their individuality. A married woman becomes the function of another individuality. Thus the appearance she brings to the world is often the mirror of her husband's egoism. A rich man hangs his wife with expensive clothes and jewels for the same reason, among others, that he adorns his own head with a plug hat, to notify everybody that he can afford it, in brief, to excite the envy of socialists but he also does it, let us hope, for another and far better and more powerful reason. To wit, that she intrigues him, that he delights in her, that he loves her, and so wants to make her gaudy and happy. This reason may not appeal to socialist sociologists. 
In Russia, according to an old scandal officially endorsed by the British Bureau for Pulling Yankee Noses, the Bolsheviki actually repudiated it as insane. Nevertheless, it continues to appeal very forcibly to the majority of normal husbands in the nations of the West, and I am convinced that it is a hundred times as potent as any other reason. The American husband, in particular, dresses his wife like a circus horse not primarily because he wants to display his wealth upon her person, but because he is a soft and moony fellow and ever ready to yield to her desires, however preposterous. If any conception of her as a chattel were actively in him, even unconsciously, he would be a good deal less her slave. As it is, her vicarious practice of conspicuous waste commonly reaches such a development that her master himself is forced into renunciations, which brings Professor Dr. Veblen's theory to self-destruction. His final conclusion is as unsound as his premises. All it comes to is a plain begging of the question. Why does a man forbid his wife to drink all the alcohol she can hold? Because, he says, it detracts sensibly from his comfort or pleasure. In other words, it detracts from his comfort and pleasure because it detracts from his comfort and pleasure. Meanwhile, the real answer is so plain that even a professor should know it. A man forbids his wife to drink too much because, deep in his secret archives, he has records of the behavior of other women who drank too much and is eager to safeguard his wife's self-respect and his own dignity against what he knows to be certain invasion. In brief, it is a commonplace of observation, familiar to all males beyond the age of twenty-one, that once a woman is drunk, the rest is a mere matter of time and place. The girl is already there. A husband, viewing this prospect, perhaps shrinks from having his chattel damaged. But let us be soft enough to think that he may also shrink from seeing humiliation, ridicule, and bitter regret inflicted upon one who is under his protection, and one whose dignity and happiness are precious to him and one whom he regards with deep, and I surely hope, lasting affection. A man's grandfather is surely not his chattel, even by the terms of the Veblen theory, and yet I am sure that no sane man would let the old gentleman go beyond a discreet cocktail or two if a bout of genuine bibbing were certain to be followed by the complete destruction of his dignity, his chastity, and, if a Presbyterian, his immortal soul. One more example of the Veblenian logic, and I must pass on. I have other fish to fry. On page 135 of the Theory of the Leisure Clash, he turns his garish and buzzing searchlight upon another problem of the domestic hearth, this time a double one. First, why do we have lawns around our country houses? Secondly, why don't we employ cows to keep them clipped instead of importing Italians, Croatians, and blackamoors? The first question is answered by an appeal to ethnology. We delight in lawns because we are the descendants of a pastoral people inhabiting a region with a humid climate. True enough, there is in a well-kept lawn an element of sensuous beauty, but that is secondary. The main thing is that our Dolicio blonde ancestors had flocks, and thus took a keen professional interest in grass. The Marx motif, the economic interpretation of history in E-flat. But why don't we keep flocks? Why do we renounce cows and hire Yugoslavs? Because to the average popular apprehension a herd of cattle so pointedly suggests thrift and usefulness that their presence would be intolerably cheap. With the highest veneration, bosh. Plowing through a bad book from end to end, I can find nothing sillier than this. Here, indeed, the whole theory of conspicuous waste is exposed for precisely what it is. One percent platitude and ninety-nine percent nonsense. 
Has the genial professor, pondering his great problems, ever taken a walk in the country? And has he, in the course of that walk, ever crossed a pasture inhabited by a cow, Bos Taurus? And has he, making that crossing, ever passed astern of the cow herself? And has he, thus passing astern, ever stepped carelessly and, but this is not a medical work, and so I had better haul up? The cow to me symbolizes the whole speculation of this laborious and humorless pedagogue. From end to end you will find the same tedious torturing of plain facts, the same relentless piling up of thin and over-labored theory, the same flatulent bombast, the same intellectual strabismus, and always with an air of vast importance, always in vexed and formidable sentences, always in the longest words possible, always in the most cacophonous English that even a professor ever wrote. One visualizes him with his head thrown back, searching for cryptic answers in the firmament and not seeing the overt and disconcerting cow, not watching his step. One sees him as the pundit par excellence, infinitely earnest and diligent, infinitely honest and patient, but also infinitely humorous, futile, and hollow. So much, at least for the present, for this professor, Dr. Thorstein Veblen, head great thinker to the parlor radicals, Socrates of the intellectual Greenwich Village, chief star, at least transiently, of the American Athenaeums. I am tempted to crowd in mention of some of his other astounding theories. For example, the theory that the presence of pupils, the labor of teaching, a concern with pedagogy, is necessary to the highest functioning of a scientific investigator, a notion magnificently supported by the examples of Flexner, Ehrlich, Metchnikoff, Loeb, and Carroll. I am tempted, too, to devote a thirdly to the astounding materialism, almost the downright hoggishness of his whole system, its absolute exclusion of everything approaching an aesthetic motive. But I must leave all these fallacies and absurdities to your own inquiry. More important than any of them, more important as a phenomenon than the professor himself and all his works, is the gravity with which his muddled and highly dubious ideas have been received. At the moment, I dare say, he is in decline. Such great thinkers have a way of going out as quickly as they come in. But a year or so ago he dominated the American scene. All the reviews were full of his ideas. A hundred lesser sages reflected them. Every one of intellectual pretensions read his books. Veblenism was shining in full brilliance. There were Veblenists, Veblen clubs, Veblen remedies for all the sorrows of the world. There were even, in Chicago, Veblen girls, perhaps Gibson girls, grown middle-aged and despairing. The spectacle, unluckily, was not novel. Go back through the history of America since the early 90s and you will find a long succession of just such violent and uncritical enthusiasms. James had his day. Dewey had his day. Ibsen had his day. Maeterlinck had his day. Almost every year sees another intellectual munion arise with his infallible peruna for all the current malaises. Sometimes this great thinker is imported. Once he was Pastor Wagner. Once he was Bergson. Once he was Eucken. Once he was Tolstoy. Once he was a lady, by name Ellen Key. Again he was another lady, Signorina Montessori but more often he is full of native growth and full of the pervasive cocksureness and superficiality of the land. I do not rank Dr. Veblen among the worst of these horospices, 
save perhaps as a stylist. I am actually convinced that he belongs among the best of them. But that best is surely depressing enough. What lies behind it is the besetting intellectual sin of the United States, the habit of turning intellectual concepts into emotional concepts, the vice of orgiastic and inflammatory thinking. There is in America no orderly and thorough working out of the fundamental problems of our society. There is only, as one Englishman has said, an eternal combat of crazes. The things of capital importance are habitually discussed, not by men soberly trying to get at the truth about them, but by Bramadism great thinkers trying only to get kudus out of them. We are beset endlessly by quacks, and they are not the less quacks when they happen to be quite honest. In all fields, from politics to pedagogics, and from theology to public hygiene, there is a constant emotional obscuration of the true issues, a violent combat of credulities, an inane debasement of scientific curiosity to the level of mob gaping. The thing to blame, of course, is our lack of an intellectual aristocracy, sound in its information, skeptical in its habit of mind, and above all secure in its position and authority. Every other civilized country has such an aristocracy. It is the natural corrective of enthusiasms from below. It is hospitable to ideas, but is adamant against crazes. It stands against the pollution of logic by emotion, the sophistication of evidence to the glory of God. But in America there is nothing of the sort. On the one hand there is the populace, perhaps more powerful here, more capable of putting its idiotic ideas into execution than anywhere else, and surely more eager to follow platitudinous messiahs. On the other hand there is the ruling plutocracy, ignorant, hostile to inquiry, tyrannical in the exercise of its power, suspicious of ideas of whatever sort. In the middle ground there is little save an indistinct herd of intellectual eunuchs, chiefly professors, often quite as stupid as the plutocracy and always in great fear of it. When it produces a stray rebel he goes over to the mob, there is no place for him within his own order. This feeble and vacillating class, unorganized and without authority, is responsible for what passes as the well-informed opinion of the country, for the sort of opinion that one encounters in the serious periodicals, for what later on leaks down much diluted into the few newspapers that are not frankly imbecile. Dr. Veblen has himself described it in The Higher Learning in America. He is one of its characteristic products, and he proves that he is thoroughly of it by the timorousness he shows in that book. It is in the main only half-educated. It lacks experience of the world, assurance, the consciousness of class solidarity and security. Of no definite position in our national life, exposed alike to the clamors of the mob and the discipline of the plutocracy, it gets no public respect and is deficient in self-respect. Thus the better sort of men are not tempted to enter it. It recruits only men of feeble courage, men of small originality. Its sublimest flower is the American college president, well described by Dr. Veblen, a perambulating syncophat and platitudinarian, a gaudy mendicant and bounder, engaged all his life not in the battle of ideas, the pursuit and dissemination of knowledge, but in the courting of rich donkeys and the entertainment of mobs. Nay, Veblen is not the worst. Veblen is almost the best. The worst is... But I begin to grow indignant, and indignation, as old Friedrich used to say, is foreign to my nature. End of chapter 5 Recording by Philip Gould